0: Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And we will continue looking at this wonder called the Incarnation. As we have been examining the Incarnation, the idea that God became a man, we. Learn from Hebrews 1 that God loves us so much that he spoke to us not by a prophet or by an angel, but by a son. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, last week we saw that Jesus succeeded in every area that we failed, that as a son of man he will inherit all things, yet we do not see the world under his rule currently. And so while this explains why our world is still a mess, even though God became a man and rescued us, it does leave us with a very practical question. How do we live in a world that's ruled by temptation, sin, and death? Well, the answer also lies in the wonder of the incarnation. This idea of Emmanuel, the God who is not just with us back then and not just in the future when he comes, but the God who is with us right now. So, Hebrews chapter 2, let's read verses 5 through 9, and then we'll pick up our study in verse 10. I'll probably read through the end of the chapter, but we'll pick it up in verse 10, our study. Hebrews two five says, "'For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, wherever we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, "'What is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels.'" You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Therefore, in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part in the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. In verse 9, it explains to us that, you know, here's God, he, he, well, verse 5, he he did not create this world and give it to the angels, but instead he gave it to man. And he, man was made a little lower than the angels. We were not as qualified for the job as they were. We didn't have the skill set, the natural uh, uh, makeup that would make us superior to the angels, and yet God elevated us. He crowned us with glory and honor, elevated us above them by giving us dominion over the earth. And so, instead of receiving that grace of God and being content with that gift from the Lord, we rejected it for something else, the lie that the enemy sold to us, and we made a mess of our world. And God loved us so much that he sent Jesus into the world, and he was made a little lower than the angels as well for the suffering of death, but then... By being that faithful son of man, by succeeding where we failed, he was already glorified as the son of God, but now as the son of man, he was crowned with glory and honor, elevated to that position of ruler over the earth. And yet we don't see all things under his feet yet. We don't see all the things under the feet of a man yet. We see a world that's in control of the enemy, that mankind follows his lies. But it explains that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, He did what we could not do by the grace of God, lived as a man should live, and then died for us. So how does that affect our everyday life? You know, God created the world to be ruled by man, but that's not how we see things now. You know, we see Jesus. We look to our Savior at all times for everything we need, but what exactly are we looking at? And how can that affect our present experience of life in a messed up world? Well, this morning we're going to see four things that Jesus' life did for us that enables us to move forward no matter what our day looks like in this present evil world. So in verse 10, we see the first thing that Jesus did for us by his life that enables us to live and shows us how to live. It says, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The phrase there, became, means that which is fitting, proper, or right, that which is in good taste. While Jesus needed to become a man in order to die for our sins, that's not the only reason for the incarnation. The incarnation was Right. Like when you taste something and it tastes exactly how it's supposed to. Have you ever decided to make something because you get a recipe for it and, you know, or someone made it for you and thought, oh, that was delicious, I'm going to make it. And then you cook it and you take it out and you take a bite and you go, it's not the same. It doesn't match up. It's not equal to it. It's not in good taste is what we would say about that. That's why when someone, you know, dresses a certain way at a, at a, at a gathering and that you're not supposed to dress, we'd say that's in poor taste, you know. That's what this word means, that which is fitting, proper, right, and good taste. While Jesus needed to become a man to die for our sins, it was right that he become a man that he identified with us completely. For it says, it became him, it was right, it was in good taste. The one for whom are all things, that he's going to rule and reign, and by whom are all things, that he's always the one who has communicated God's will toward man. It became him in bringing many sons unto glory. He's going to elevate us as well. It became him as in good taste to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The word there, perfect, means the full experience. It, it was right for Jesus to have the full experience of humanity through his sufferings. Jesus' life on earth was a process of identifying with us fully. You know, when the scripture talks about how he learned obedience as a son. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't understand what obedience was in heaven. Certainly Jesus, he's God. He understands all those things. But the concept here is he went through the full experience of everything we go through. He identifies with us. The incarnation cannot be contained in either just Jesus' birth or just Jesus' death. It is everything in between too. I remember when uh, the internet first came out, I was alive before that. <laughs> and, you know, the big thing, of course, was, you know, you're not, now you got to get a website, you know, and so everybody's getting a website. And so, you know, we had to develop one for the church. And so we're, you know, designing this website, trying to figure things out. What do you got to have on there? We got to have directions. You got to have a statement of faith. You got to do this. And of course, I thought, well, if people are going to visit our site and that may be their first point of contact, we got to put the gospel up there. And so I wrote this whole thing out, and you know, I remember sharing with a, a buddy of mine, and I was explaining how Christ, he, all of his life is attributed to us. When we talk about how the righteousness of Christ is given to us, it's not just some ephemeral idea of, of righteousness or ethereal idea of, of righteousness that, well, you know, we've just been called righteous, but it doesn't really mean anything practically. No, the Bible teaches us that Christ's actual righteousness, his perfect life is attributed to us. And I remember I had a friend read through it. I said, make sure this sounds good, whatever. And he's like, I don't think this is biblical. And I was like, what do you mean it's not biblical? And so I studied the word on this. I'm like, I want to make sure I got this right. And sure enough, you see all throughout the scriptures that all of the life of Christ is attributed to us. And so we cannot contain the incarnation either in just a single act of a baby being born and placed in a manger, nor of him dying on a cross. Even though those two things are wonderful in explaining God's love for us they will unfortunately be incomplete if we don't take in consideration his entire life. You see, in heaven, Jesus could identify with our experiences of pleasure, joy, and triumph. He experienced those things in heaven. But through his life, he can identify with our pain, with our sorrow, our disappointment, our temptations, all the things that we go through. So whatever you're going through right now, Jesus doesn't just know about it as God. I think sometimes we can, you know, someone says, well, well, Jesus knows what you're going through. Of course I know what he knows what I'm going through. He's God. He knows everything. Hold on a second. Let's, Let's take a step back. While that is true, that's not the full truth. Jesus doesn't just intellectually know about it because he's God and he knows everything. He also identifies with it as a son of man. He understands He gets it. He's lived it. Even if he didn't personally experience it, people around him did somewhere. So he knows, not just here, but by experience as well. And as our captain, he knows just what to say and just what to do to lead us out of whatever tar pit we're in and to bring us to the glory that he's been crowned with. That's what it tells us here that it was right to make the captain of their salvation experience these things fully through all of his sufferings. Notice it doesn't just say through his suffering, not just through the cross, but through everything he's been through. Jesus knew what it was like to lose a loved one. He knew what it was like to experience death in the loved one. You know, he knew what it was like to experience sickness, you know, someone else. I'm sure he knew what it was like to experience so many of the things that are represented in this room. If you were to share whatever you're struggling with today, whatever you've been struggling with in 2020, he's gone through it and he can identify. And he knows just what to say and to do to lead us out of it and to bring us to the glory he's been crowned with. So the first way that the incarnation affects our present experience of this messed up life is that he identifies with us. But the second way is found in verse 11. He is also happy to be united with us. It says, for both he that sanctifies, that's Jesus, the captain who makes us holy. That's what sanctifies means, to make holy. For both he that sanctifies, Jesus, and they who are sanctified, that's us as believers, are all of one. That's interesting." Literally, in in the original language, it means they are all from the same one. What does that mean? They're all from the same one. Jesus may be the only begotten Son of God. Nothing will ever change that. There is, I'm not not a little God, okay? I don't care what anybody else tells you. I am not a little God, all right? Jesus is not a little God either. He is God, 100% God. I am not a begotten son of God. However, even though Jesus may be the only begotten son of God, as our captain, he has united us to himself by making us adopted sons and daughters of God as well. We are now joint heirs with Christ. The Bible says we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. That is our position in him. We have been elevated. He is leading us to glory as our captain. That's why it explains he brings many sons to glory. You know, it's interesting that it doesn't say he brings many disciples to glory. It doesn't say he brings many converts or believers to glory, even though that's true. But he has united us to himself. We are sons and daughters. Isn't that awesome? You know, Jesus doesn't look at you and me and say, well, you're only here because dad made me invite you into the family. Even though we were created small and insignificant, right? He doesn't see us as small and insignificant. It says, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's mind-blowing. Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother, you know? He's happy we've been united to him. He's happy we're part of the family. He's happy that we're joiners with him. He's happy that we're his bride. You know, no one's dragging Jesus to the altar. He is happy to be there. And he's looking for the day that the Father gives the nod so we can be reunited and be with him forever. He is happy to have us alongside him. Isn't that awesome? You know, if you have trusted the Son of God as your Savior, you are never alone. You always belong somewhere. You're always wanted, and you always have a future and a hope, no matter what's going on here or how someone else is treating you here. No matter who's rejected you, no matter who's left you, no matter what this broken world has taken from you, You always have someone who is happy to be united with you, who will never leave you or forsake you. That's the second thing that Jesus did for us that enables us to live in this present world. The third thing is found in verses 14 and 15. Verses 12 and 13 are quotations from the Old Testament that confirm Jesus' mentality towards us. So I'm not gonna go into those, but let's go to verses 14 and 15 because it shows us this third thing that Jesus did for us that enables us to live in this present evil world. It says in verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. The children here are, are originally, you know, we, we read the scriptures, I believe it's in Matthew, it might be Luke, but it talks about how Adam was the son of God. He was not the a begotten son of God like Jesus. He's not, he was made in the image of God, but he was not of the very essence and nature of God. Adam was a man, right? God created Adam and Eve in his image, and, and, and yet he called him a son. Now, that was not his natural position. It was not a, 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 a family position in the sense of how it naturally happened. He wasn't there from all eternity, but he, we were elevated, again, a gift of grace to the status of son and daughter of God. For as much then as the children, Adam and Eve, and then by nature, of course, us, since they have passed on that DNA to us, since we are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Now that phrase, a partaker of flesh and blood, is a a Greek idiom, a Greek saying back then for human nature. They would always use it to describe something that was different than the nature of their gods. You know, When they would tell a story and their gods would get involved in the story, saying a partaker of flesh and blood would distinguish someone as a human being. We who were made human, for as much then as that happened, he also himself likewise took part of the same. The phrase took part means to become a member of a group. He joined our club. He joined our group. He became fully human. Now, that's interesting because this wasn't something he was born into. You and I don't get a choice into what group we're going to be in, you know, you can be like, "Hey, you can be an angel, or you can be a human, or you can be God." And be like, "Well, I'm I'm going to go for God," you know, or I'm going to go for angel. You know, I'm definitely not picking the human part. We didn't get a choice, but Jesus did. And Jesus, he didn't join the group of angels. He joined our group, in addition to being God. And through that, why did he do that? That through death, his death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The word there, destroy, means to put an end to, to render ineffective, to abolish, that through his death he might abolish, render ineffective him that had the power of death, that is the devil. That's an interesting concept. And then and, and it says that the devil, he, we were delivered, Uh, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We were delivered from the power of death held by the devil. Now, that's a weird thought because you think, how how does Satan have the power of death? How does the enemy have that power? I mean, he can't create things. You know, did he create death? Well, no, he didn't create death. You know, but neither did the Lord. Neither did the Lord. I hear people say things a lot about death that are incorrect. I hear Christians say things about death that are not biblical. Uh, For example, I'll even go to memorial services at times and I'll hear ministers say, you know, death is a natural part of life or death is a part of the cycle of life. I want to scream at that moment because I want to say you don't understand the meaning of life then because death is nothing like life. It has nothing to do with life. It's a complete opposite of life. How can it be a part of life? The Bible tells us that death is the last enemy that will be defeated. It is not a part of God's plan. That's why it hurts. It's why it stinks. It's why it feels so wrong. Because God didn't create it, He didn't make it. Now, Satan is not a creator. He can't create things. He did not either. The Bible tells us that sin begat death. And the Bible tells us something else that's very interesting about our enemy. While the Bible repeatedly tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, it also states that Satan is what? A liar and a murderer from when? The beginning. Oh. What happened in the beginning? He lied to Eve, deceived her, and what happened? She died. That's what the scriptures tell us. He's a murderer from the beginning. So while he did not create death, he has been a killer from the start. And death entered our world when Adam and Eve sinned. And Satan has not stopped. He and the enemy forces, the Bible tells us, desire to steal, kill, and destroy. Death was never a part of God's plan. It is the realm of the enemy. It is a power he wields, not death itself, but the the power that God Death brings into our lives. We'll talk about that in a second, what it brings into our lives, but he wields that influence through his lies and through his deception and through his murderous heart. It is the realm of the enemy, and it will be the final enemy that Jesus destroys. And because of these things, death is terrifying, and therefore it is enslaving. We fear for it ourselves. We fear fear it for the ones we love. And the enemy uses that fear to tempt us to make decisions that prioritize making the most of this life. Even if it comes at the expense of others, it comes at the expense of obeying God. He wields death, the power of death, like a bludgeon to terrify us. Now, Fear of death is only possible if we're still subject to death. Death is a product of sin. The age where sinful man rules and we don't see all things under the Lord's feet. So when the question is asked, why do bad things happen? I don't mean to sound trite or insensitive, but the reason bad things happen is because we're still trying to run the show. That's why bad things happen. Because the enemy still leads us around by the nose with his lies because he's still a murderer, he's still a liar, and we still listen. Now, that's the bad news. (laughs) The good news is if you're a Christian, you've been set free from that, right? That's what this whole point says here, that Jesus rescued us from the power of death. We've been set free from that. Jesus made a very interesting statement in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, and I like to teach on this at memorial services. I don't don't talk about death as just a natural part of life. No, I explain how death is not a part of the Christian life because Jesus, when Martha's brother died, when Lazarus died, and she came to him and said, she was heartbroken. She said, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says to her, he goes, your brother will rise again. That sounds a bit callous, doesn't it? What do you, and she even, you see her response. What do you mean my brother's gonna rise again? I know he's gonna rise again. How does that help me right now? That's not the point. I didn't come to you because I go, I don't know if I believe in the resurrection. I came to you, Jesus, because my brother's dead and I have this pain right now, and what do I do? That's when Jesus replies, and he says, you missed my point, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he is dead, yet shall he live. He that believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Talk about being put on the spot. That's crazy, Jesus. What do you mean never dies? I mean exactly what I said. I'm the resurrection and the life. Martha, if you believe in me like your brother believed in me, there is no death. There is no death. You see, for the believer, our last exhale in this body becomes our first inhale in heaven. There's no end, there's no waiting period, there's no no chunk of, of of nothing. There's no sleep. There's no there's no no you know holding place. We're absent here and we're with the Lord, right? There is no death because the Bible describes death in two ways, not as ceasing to exist, but as the body physically dying and our spirit and soul leaving our body and then secondly, being separated from the Lord for eternity. That is not our experience as a Christian, right? So while my spirit and soul may leave this body, And and to be frank, that's not a bad idea on some days. (laughs) We'll always be with the Lord. And you'll always be with your brothers and sisters, right? Jesus wrecked all the reasons for the fears that tempt us to maximize the now, to live as if this is it. And because of that, Guess what? I can prefer others above myself because this isn't it. I can patiently wait because this isn't it. I can rest in Him even in horrible situations. I can find joy even in my pain because why? Now isn't forever. Whatever you're going through now isn't forever. And forever is really good. You and I aren't living for now. We are living to follow our captain until we reach glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. So Jesus, thirdly, he rescued us from the power of death. Now you might be saying, Pastor, well, that's hard though, (laughs) especially when life is hard. I understand that. And you know what? Jesus knows that too. That's why he is Emmanuel, God with us not used to be with us will be with us but God with us Emmanuel doesn't mean God came for a little while to be with us or that God will come someday in the future to be with us it means what it means God with us and thus in verses 16 through 18 we see this fourth blessing that Jesus gave to us by his life that still gives that enables us to live in this present evil world Verse 16, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Jesus did not become a member of the angels. Don't let anyone tell you Jesus is an angel. Don't let anyone tell you that he is Michael the archangel. He never joined the group of angels, all right? He joined our group. He became a member of humanity. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him, because he did this, In all things, it behooved him. The word behooved means it was necessary. He was obligated to. By becoming a man, there was something Jesus had to go through. All things to be made like unto his brethren. Jesus was fully human. Not 99%, not 98%, not 94%, not 50%. He was 100% human in his experience He experienced everything we experience. Why? Why was this necessary? Why did he have to experience that? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. That he could become not just a high priest who could bring an offering that would be acceptable to God for us, but that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus as a son of God could have acted as a mediator. It's not like he doesn't have the skill set until he becomes a man. He could have been the go-between for us. He could have mediated between us and, and God the Father. He could have somehow done something for that. But by becoming a man, he would become more than just a high priest, more than just someone that we could go to to get to the Father. He would become a merciful and faithful high priest the word that he, phrase that he might be means that he might acquire or experience a state Jesus, by becoming a man, acquired and experienced a state of being that allowed him to be not just a high priest, but a merciful and faithful high priest. What does it mean that he's a merciful high priest? When we think of mercy, we usually think of the idea, the the theological idea that we don't get what we deserve. And that's true, that Jesus is merciful. He does not give us what we deserve. Thank you. But the word merciful here is different. It means that he might become one who has compassion on those who are struggling. Now, maybe you have experienced this, maybe you've done this to someone where they're struggling with something and you have no sympathy at all for them, no compassion at all for them. You're just going, here we are again. If that's been done to you, you know that hurts and when you've done that to others, you know you're probably not being nice. Jesus is never like that. He is compassionate when he sees us struggling. His heart goes out to us when he sees us struggling. You know, as a parent, there are a lot of things I say and as soon as the words leave my mouth, I hear that still small voice in the back of my mind going, oh, really, Will? Is that so? Like this one. How many times do I have to tell you? And then that still small voice comes right in the back of my mind. How many times do we need to have this conversation? When are you going to learn this? And that still small voice always says the same thing. Do I ever ask you those questions in that tone of voice, Will? (laughs) Never. Because he's compassionate. His heart goes out to us when we're struggling because he knows what it's like to be tempted He knows what it's like to have to wrestle. He knows what it's like to see other people struggle. And secondly, his experience also taught him or equipped him to be a faithful high priest. The word faithful means one you can trust. I love little guys, mostly because I've learned the secret of how to have fun with them. If you go into a room of little guys and you want them to accept you, do one simple thing. Go get on the ground with them. When I see little guys, especially one that's kind of nervous around me, one of the first things I do is decrease my physical being to their height. And if it's in a place where I can sit on the ground and play with their toys or whatever while they're playing, I do the same thing. Because that's a clue for them, oh, they get it. I can trust them. Jesus, by coming a man by becoming a man by living how we lived he became someone that we can trust not because we just go well he's trustworthy i think he says he's trustworthy so i, I should trust him no because he's lived it he's lived it so he's compassionate as a high priest he is someone you can trust Certainly, Jesus became fully man to reunite us with God through his sacrifice, but he also experienced all that it means to be human so he could identify with us and what the high priest does is help us, especially in times of temptation, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able, equipped, has the ability to succour, help, assist those that are tempted. He can help us in times of temptation you know when the the part of the high priest's job was to be sympathetic and so as you would come up and you'd be trailing a little fluffy behind you you know coming to the tabernacle and the high priest would see you come up and he'd say John and he'd look at that lamb and he'd go John what happened you know my neighbor Bob he's always letting his animals go and munch on my yard you know and I lost it, I totally lost it, and I killed one of his animals. I gotta make restitution. I've already given him a lamb, and now here's one I'm bringing to the Lord for forgiveness for my trespass offering. Part of what the high priest's job was to do is to go, John, I understand. I've done that too. Let's go take it to the Lord. Jesus can do that with you but he can do one thing better than that high, those high priests could. He can not only just say, let's take it to the Lord together. He can say, and let me help you get it right. Let me help you not fail this way anymore. Let me live through you and succeed where I already succeeded. I don't need you to try to live the Christian life. I already lived it. Now let me live it through you. He can do so much more that's why he's our great high priest, why he is the best high priest we can ever have. If you are in pain or you feel alone or you're afraid or you're tempted, you can certainly and should certainly look to heaven with expectation for Jesus' return. Lord, I can't wait for you to get back. But you must also look beside yourself to see Christ's life, the totality of the incarnation, all that he lived through by becoming a man because it's through that that he can help you live through it until he returns. Look at Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. It piggybacks on this idea of what, Jesus, what it means that he can help those who are tempted. Hebrews four fourteen it says this. Seeing then, he establishes that Jesus is a, a high priest who can help us. Then in chapter, uh, the rest of chapter, or all of chapter three and, and then the beginning of chapter four, he's urging us to listen to our great high priest, to not listen to, to these other thoughts But then he concludes, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our profession. Let's not give up. Let's not go backwards. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched, who can't sympathize with the feeling of our infirmities. It means who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. No, but he was in all points tempted, like as we are, with one exception, he never failed. He never gave into temptation, yet without sin. So what do we do? Let us therefore come boldly before unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you are going through these things, you can go to your Savior, who not only knows what it's like to go through the struggle, but he, he succeeded, never gave into temptation, and therefore he can help you in your time of need. And even if Jesus didn't experience exactly what you're going through, his full experience of the human condition means he can sympathize. So if you're weeping, he'll weep with you. He'll come for you. If you're raging or doubting, he will listen to you. And then he'll lovingly correct you. If you're scared, he will stay by your side. Never leave it. And if you don't know what to do, well, just keep following him because the one who denied himself and took up his cross every day of his earthly life, you can know this one thing. He will always lead you to do the same. He said, I don't know what to do. Deny yourself, take up your cross today and follow Jesus because that's what he always did and he will always lead us to do the same. In every way, Jesus can help us. Now, Struggling with this, of course, is only possible if temptation still exists, something that will not exist when Jesus rules. Satan will be locked up in the the abyss for a 1,000 years. So that temptation still exists right now is evidence that we still see things under mankind's rule, not the Lord's yet. And so the final question then might be, well then, why doesn't God fix that? I mean, why not just be gone, you know? And then Come and bring the kingdom. Why doesn't Jesus just come back now and get rid of all the evil so we can have a perfect world again? Well, look at Second Peter three nine with me. Second Peter three nine. Jesus has promised that He will do this. But 2 Peter 3.9 tells us he is not unfaithful to that promise. The Lord is not slack. He's not lazy about it. He's not just waiting to wait. He's not just doing it because, you know, well, you know, I, I, I need to let him simmer for a bit. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. Instead, he's this, but his long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. You see, if you haven't trusted the Son of God, the reason He hasn't come back yet, Jesus waits because He doesn't want you to perish. Because you and I are part of the problem. If you're not saved, you know, if you're not, if if you're being disobedient to the Lord, we're part of the problem, and He doesn't want anyone to experience Second Peter three ten which says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. We, Bible says that for believers, the day of the Lord will not come as a thief in the night. That's not for us, but for unbelievers it will. In the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Does that sound like something you want to experience? Not me. Not me. And Jesus doesn't want you to experience either so how do I avoid that? Well, it's really simple. The Bible has a one-word answer for it, repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to change your mind. It means you thought you were a good person, you thought you were fine going your own way, doing things your way, and now you're gonna change your mind about it. You're gonna say, you know what? I'm not a good person. I'm not going the right way. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing my best, and I'm falling way short even of what I consider to be my best. You agree with God about your sin, And then secondly, you receive his love. You place your trust in the Son of God who became the Son of Man. And the Bible says when you do so, you'll be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Whoever trusts in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, four things What did Jesus give us by his life? He identifies with us. Secondly, he is happy to be united with us. We're never alone. He's rescued us from the power of death and he can help us when we're tempted. And that is the whole concept of Emmanuel. The entire concept of Emmanuel, God with us. You see it all throughout the Bible if you're looking for it. You'll find it everywhere if you're looking for it. It just doesn't call it Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 20, what does he say? And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I am Emmanuel, always, unto the end of the age. Same thing. What about when we read in our scripture reading in Acts 18, verse 10, when Paul was struggling and what did the Lord say to him? He said, the Lord came to him at night and he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for I am what? Emmanuel, I am with you, still, still with you, always will be with you, even unto the end of the age. And then, of course, amongst many other places I'm not mentioning in Scripture, we see it here at the end of Hebrews chapter 13, and I'll close with reading verses 1 through 8 as the worship team comes up. In Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 5, we see this practical application. What do we do? How do you know, we you know. This is how we're supposed to live in this current evil world, even though we're struggling and going through challenges. He says, let brotherly love continue. Don't be forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Also, he says, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and those who suffer adversity as being yourselves in the body. you got your own struggles, so be sympathetic with those who are going through difficult times. Marriage is, honorable, marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Be pure. Verse five, let your conversation conduct your life without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. The Christian life, right? Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Listen, I don't know what 2021 holds, but I can promise you this. It's not all of a sudden gonna become different or better just because a clock ticks, okay? I can promise you this also, that you can live in 2021 under this heading where you can say every day, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I'm not going to fear what the government can do to me. I'm not going to fear what my boss can do to me. I'm not going to fear what a pandemic can do to me. I'm not going to fear what the virus can do to me. I'm not going to fear what, you know, uh, my neighbor can do to me. I'm not going to fear any of these things. I'm just going to walk with Jesus every day. Right? I'm going to do what his word says, you know? I don't like what the government says. Okay, that's fine. I have 2 Peter, you know, 1 Peter chapter 3 to guide me, you know? 1 Peter chapter 2, to, I think it's 3, might be 2 where it says, submit yourselves therefore unto the government, governing authority says unto the Lord. I can do that without worry, without fear. You know? I can do all the things that are mentioned here. I can do everything that's listed without any fear at all, knowing that the creator of the universe will never leave me, never forsake me, that he's my helper. I don't have to be afraid of what man will do to me. Because I belong to him. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God whose faith imitate considering, considering the result of their conduct. Look at the godly people around you and how they're filled with joy and how they've got hope and no matter what's going on. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still with us. Amen? Amen. Amen. You know, if you keep reading in verse nine, it tells us don't be cared about with strange doctrines and weird teachings. Listen, there's a lot of things you can invest a lot of time into today. There's a lot of voices out there who want your ear and you give it it to them. However, I would encourage you, listen to Emmanuel. He never changes. He's always steady. You can always trust him. You can always rest in him. Amen? Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, what a a joy that you're not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, that we're part of your family or your bride. What a joy it is to know that you've been through everything that we could go through and that you get it. We're not talking to someone who doesn't understand. We're not talking to someone who's not sympathetic. Lord, we thank you that you've rescued us from the power of death. We don't have to live Underneath its fear and its 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 bondage, tells us live now. No, no. If if you if you don't do this, life will be bad. Oh Lord, we're not living for that. It's okay. We'll be forever with you. And Lord, you have won where we failed. You're compassionate in our failures and our struggles. You're worthy of trust because you're faithful. And we can look to you in all of our struggles, all of our temptations for the help we need to overcome them because you already overcame. Thank you for your life. Thank you that you're still Emmanuel. You're still with us. We give our lives to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.